This Torah class is brought to you by TorahAnytime.com. We are talking, discussing Megillah Esther, and we had a few questions. Why is it called Megillah Esther? Why isn't it called Megillah Mordechai? After all, Mordechai was the power behind the scenes, and we're going to discuss that. And we have the question is, when did Esther take over as being the power behind the scenes instead of Mordechai? When did Esther actually take over as being the power uh, behind the story? And so why is the book called Megillah Esther? We also explained last week, just a reminder, the word Esther is really of a non-Jewish name. It's a name after, it's called Ishtar. Ishtar, a star, she was a star. Her Hebrew name was Hadassah. Hadassah he Esther, the Megillah tells us. So why was she called Esther? It's interesting because the Talmud asks, where is Esther mentioned in the Torah? And the answer, she's mentioned in a pasuk in Devarim. It's not a very nice pasuk. It talks about when the Jews worship idols. And Hashem says, I will hide in my face on that day. And basically, the word Esther means hidden. Who's hidden? Hashem is hidden in history. It's a time of hiddenness. A time after the Beit HaMikdash was destroyed. The first temple was destroyed was a time of tremendous hiddenness for the Jewish people. They compared themselves to a woman who was divorced. And they said, you know, maybe Hashem does not want us anymore. And therefore, we are now free of Hashem. And, uh, and Yechezkel answers, no, you are still married to Hashem. You are still responsible to Hashem. So that's a very important idea that they thought that, that uh, God's face is hidden in history. We have no idea what God wants. Maybe now we are free of the yoke of heaven. Maybe now we don't have to worry about what God wants. So that's, that's yeah, Haskell's answer. No, you're not free. Even though you cannot see what God wants, you are still bound to Hashem. You are still bound to Hashem. It's very important. All of us are still bound to Hashem despite the destruction of the Beit HaMikdash. So the question we have is, Esther means hiddenness. And who is hidden? It's Hashem hidden. That's why it's interesting because the book of Esther has no name of God in it. The book of Esther has no name of Hashem. It's interesting. The question we have is, why is there no name of Hashem? So again, that's part of the hiddenness. Part of the hiddenness is that there is no name of Hashem in the whole Megillah. In in fact, it's interesting. The word Megillah literally means a scroll. But the word Megillah comes from the root legalot. You know, when you open the scroll, you are revealing the text inside the the scroll. So legalot is to reveal and what does Megillah Esther mean? It's revealing the hiddenness. It's, re- it's revealing the hiddenness of Hashem. So it's very important to reveal the hiddenness of Hashem. How does the Megillah reveal the hiddenness of Hashem? By taking these disparate events, different events that happened over a period of 12 years and putting them close together. And then we can see a sort of um, whole, the whole picture of the story. So it's like watching a movie, you see different clips of the movie. So the Megillah puts different clips of the story together so that we can figure out the whole story and we can see Hashem's hand behind the story. How uh, Hashverosh's queen Vashti was taken care of by him, that's number one. And then Hashverosh looking for a different queen and he happens to marry Esther. So already we have the picture that Hashem is providing the salvation of the Jewish people before even the decree of Haman. So the salvation was already provided for before the decree of Haman. Esther was already in place in the king's palace before the decree of Haman, before there was a decree against the Jewish people. And now we can start seeing Hashem's, Hashem is really playing chess. Hashem plays chess with the world. The only trouble is the moves are so far apart, we can't see the moves. So we can just see, you know, we see the Holocaust and we see the state of Israel, what's going on over here. We see the, the Jews being afflicted. We see tremendous assimilation. And yet we see the majority of Jews are pretty much now in Israel. So with all the bad things that are going on, we also see the good things that are going on. And we try and figure out what's going on. We have to reveal the hiddenness of our lives. You have to reveal the hiddenness of what is Hashem up to. And that's what Megillat Esther means. Megillat means to reveal. Esther means the hidden things. We have to reveal God's hand in history. It's interesting because now we have no prophecy. We have no idea what God wants. All we have is what the Torah tells us. And so we, we know that God is talking to us through the Torah, but still, Hashem's actions are hidden from us. And our job is continue this mission of Megillah Esther. 
And we continue this mission of trying to figure out what does God want? We're looking for God. Amidst the hiddenness, we are looking for Hashem. Amidst the hiddenness of Hashem, we're looking for Him. There's a saying, and this is brought down in the Midrash on Mishlei. The Midrash says, when all the other holidays and festivals are forgotten, Purim will still be commemorated. It's a very strange statement. What do you mean? All the other holidays are forgotten. So Rashbar of Shlomo Ben Aderik, one of the famous chief rabbis of Spain, hundreds of years ago in the golden age of Spain, the Rashbar says, what does it mean? The other festivals will be forgotten. Literally, the Jews will be so assimilated, they're going to forget all about all the other festivals. They won't celebrate Pesach. They won't celebrate Shavuot. They won't celebrate Sukkot. But what they celebrate, they'll be celebrating Purim. They'll be celebrating Purim. Why will the Jews today be celebrating Purim? It's interesting. Even the most reformed Jews today celebrate Purim. It's interesting. The two rabbinical festivals are the most celebrated, Purim and Hanukkah. So it's interesting. Why will the Jews celebrate Purim? Because Purim is the festival that speaks to us the most today. Why does Purim speak to us the most today? Well, actually, Purim and Hanukkah. Why? Because Purim is a festival about destruction, about Holocaust, about the planning of the worst Holocaust, which is destroy the structure of the whole Jewish people. You know, Hitler could only destroy a third of the Jewish people. That was more than enough. Six million out of 24 million. That's, was it 24? Well, okay, so it's a quarter of the Jewish people. So you destroyed a quarter of the Jewish people. And uh, Haman wanted to destroy all the Jewish people because all the Jewish people, for the one of the few times in history, were living in this massive empire of 127 provinces. This massive empire. I mean, Hodu Kush from India in the east all the way down to Ethiopia and Africa in the west. So this massive empire, all the Jews were living in this massive empire, and Haman was planning to kill every single Jew. And he had the power, and he had the ability to destroy every single Jew. That's why Purim speaks to us, because it celebrates being saved from destruction, saved from the Holocaust. Anyway, so it's interesting, Midrash, the Midrash says, all the holidays will be forgotten except for Purim. There's a Rambam as well, who based himself on the Talmud Yerushalmi, which has a slightly different twist to this. And the Talmud says, and I want to quote to you from the Rambam, Kol all the books of the prophets and all the books of writings are going to be annulled when the time of the Mashiach, except for the book of Esther, imagine, all the other books of the prophets, except for the five books of Moses, all the prophets, Yoshua, Shoftim, all the prophets going down to Malachi, the books of the prophets will not be speaking to us anymore. The only book that will survive for us in Matthew, the Mashiach, is the book of Esther. So the question is obviously why? Why does Rambam say that? He based himself on a pasuk in uh, the, the Megillah itself. Towards the end it says, The remembrance of Megillah will not be forgotten by the Jewish people. So the Megillah will talk to us right through the ages because the Megillah is about physical destruction in every generation. We say in the Haggadah, They try and destroy us. Every generation, you know, it's interesting. My short life, I've seen, number one, was I saw Nasser. Nasser was the president of Egypt in the 50s, and he was always saying, we'll throw the Jews into the sea, we'll destroy Israel, we'll throw the Jews into the sea. I remember the Six-Day War, the tremendous uh, trepidation. I was a little kid, and all the teachers in school, the whole school was on edge. What's going to happen to the Jewish people? We really thought he's going to throw them into the sea. Every day, the Arabs were saying they're winning the war, they're going to throw the Jews into the sea. And six days later, we saw this massive miracle, and the war was was over in six days, and uh, Nasser didn't throw us into the sea. In fact, we just we destroyed his whole army and his navy and his air force. So we, I saw Nasser. Then I saw the Saddam Hussein. Again, he's going to destroy the Jewish people with all his missiles. We also have nuclear uh, capabilities. He's making make nuclear bombs. And Israel smashed their reactor. And Saddam Hussein, we saw the picture of Saddam crawling out of his hole when the American soldiers putting their guns on him and eventually they hung him. Saddam Hussein. And then we had Ahmadinejad. We don't hear about him anymore, but now we have the Iranians. And it's interesting how the story of Purim applies to us today exactly the same way as it applied to us then. The way that uh, Purim applied to us then, here we have Haman and we have all the Ayatollahs every day. They're planning how to destroy Israel, how to destroy six million Jews. It's amazing. And uh, it's amazing how the story of Purim is still here. And that's, that's why Rabbam says 
that the book of Esther will speak to us. All the other books will be forgotten except for the book of Megillat Esther because it speaks to us in our generation, the generation of Mashiach. It speaks to us about Jewish um, survival in a different, uh, in a different kind of world of hatred and anti-Semitism. So that is interesting. This idea that Purim is one of the festivals that will survive the future, and the Book of Esther will survive in the future. So it's interesting. The Book of Purim, the Purim, usually the books of the prophets celebrate supernatural events. For example, Pesach was a supernatural event. Shavuot was a supernatural event. Sukkot, which celebrates 40 years in the desert, was a supernatural event. And Purim is a very natural event. You find it written in the Megillah as if it happened, everything happened normally. There's no name of God. There's no miracles mentioned. It's a very natural event. And that's why we have to look for God in history. We have to look and find out what does God want from us. We don't see God in the book. So what uh, the rabbis tell us, every time it says the word Hamelech, in fact, when you listen to the Megillah tomorrow night, listen for that, for that word, Hamelech, the king. Whenever the Megillah says the king, it's talking about God. So Melech Hashverosh is the king Hashverosh, but Hamelech, the king, is from God. So it's a, it's a, it looks like a natural event. But we see God's providence behind the scenes, watching over Esther, watching over Mordecai, watching over the Jewish people of Persia. So maybe it has implications for us today. Maybe that's the reason why the book of, of uh, Esther is so important. And that is because today it applies to us. Maybe the final redemption, as we see today, is coming in a very natural way. You know, it's interesting. The book of Zechariah and the book of Daniel have a big debate. How will the Mashiach come? One says he will come in the clouds and miraculous events. The other one says he will come riding on a white donkey. What does that mean? He'll come in a very natural way, like a donkey is plodding away. So there's different ways of explaining how the Mashiach will come. So the Gemara says, if we are worthy, he'll come in wonders and miracles. And if we're not worthy, he'll come in a very natural way. So today we're seeing that Mashiach is sort of coming in a very natural way through natural events. And that maybe has more implications for us. Why does the book of Esther speak to us more than the other books of the prophets? So it's interesting. That's one of the very interesting points. So many questions we can ask. Why was this manuscript, this document, which never has God's name in it, was never mentioned God's name, why was it made part of our Torah? Why was it made part of Tanakh? Number two, if Mordechai was the main force of the whole episode, why is the Megillah named after Esther, not named after Mordechai? Right? Why do we have to read the Megillah both in the day and the night? Why not just read it once? Why do we have to read it night and then the day? Esther was the one who was totally lost. I want to talk about Esther because this, this class is, is titled The uh, Finals, The Amazing Sacrifice of Esther. So you have to understand, let's go back and, and talk about Esther. Had a little Hadassah, it says she was Batodo, uh, she was the daughter of Mordechai's uncle, Abichail. His name was Abichail, Hadassah Bat Abichail. She was the daughter of Abichail, Mordechai's uncle, which makes her Mordechai's. Cousin. Now the Gemara says, the Torah, the Megillah says, but he Mordechai Lolabat. He took her as his daughter. In other words, it seems like her parents both died. Her mother died in childbirth, her father died as well. And Mordechai took her as his daughter, which implies that he adopted her. However, the Gemara says in Megillah, he took her not as his daughter, he took her as his house. In other words, he married Esther. Mordechai married Esther. It's a part of the Megillah. People don't really realize this is part of our oral tradition that Mordechai married Esther. She was a married woman married to no one other than Mordechai. And what happens is when the king is looking for a beautiful girl to marry, he tells his uh, messengers, find me a Betulah, Nara Betulah. Find me an unmarried woman. And what happens is they pick up all pretty women. They don't care. Marry, don't marry. They don't, don't ask questions. They see a pretty woman on the street. They kidnap her, put her on the, on, the, on the cart. And they kidnap her. They take her into the king's harem. And that's how Esther got into the king's harem. Against her will. She was kidnapped by the people on the street. She's walking down the street. She's kidnapped. They're taking all the pretty women into the king's harem. And she's kidnapped against her will. Now we have to go beyond that. So she is in the king's hand beyond her will. She does not help to attain 
the queenship. She does not help in any way. She doesn't want to be a queen of Persia because when she's a queen of Persia, it means all her ties with Mordecai are broken. All her ties to her husband will be broken. All her ties with her people will be broken. It's amazing, amazing sacrifice we're going to see over here. Tremendous sacrifice. And the most poignant words in the Megillah are, watch out for them, kasher avariti avariti. If I'm going to be lost, I will be lost. If I am lost, I will be lost. She says twice, I am lost. I'm, I'm going to be lost in this world. I'm going to be lost in the next world. Her sacrifice was a sacrifice of two worlds. She was sacrificing her this world with Mordechai, her husband, and she was sacrificing her Alam because she is now going to be intermarried to this monster, the monster Ahasuerus. People don't think of Ahasuerus as a monster. He was a tremendous monster. You know why he was a monster? Because he disguised himself as a buffoon. He disguised, he wiped his dirty hands on other people. He also wanted to kill the Jewish people. Of course he did. How do you know? He tells Haman, take the money and take the people. You don't even have to pay me to kill them. I also want to kill them. But he hides behind Haman. Haman becomes the villain of the story, not the king. And you know what? When Mordecai and Esther wrote the story, they were very careful not to offend the king. They put the onus on Haman. But really, you could see, if you read the story carefully, you'll see it was the king also behind the scenes pushing Haman to kill the Jews. He didn't, he didn't even want to take money. He didn't want to charge. Maybe if he was charged a lot of money, Haman would have second thoughts. He says, no, take the money and take the people as if it was just a, an arbitrary decision of the king's part. Human life had no value for him at all. He had no value for human life. Ahasuerus was a real uh, dictator. He was a dictator in the, in the tradition of all dictators who have no conscience, who are able to kill people at whim. They're able to kill a whole nation at whim, men, women, children at a whim. Just take them and kill them and uh, take the money as well. I don't want money. So Ashurash was, we have to remember, Ashurash was a monster. And Esther now has to live with this monster. Tremendous sacrifice. So she says, if I'm lost in this world, I'm lost to my husband, I've lost to my people. I'm lost as a Jew. I'm going to stay with this rotten king, Ahasuerus, uh, who's everything that stands against Judaism, not for Judaism. And I'm stuck with him as a husband. I'm intermarried. We don't realize the book of Esther is a book about intermarriage. We make Esther to this heroine, and she is a heroine. Why? She was willing to suffer in order to save us. She was willing to suffer as a wife of this monster, in order to save us. So we're going to see, we're going to talk about this turning point in her life when she starts taking control over the events. There's a, a major turning point in her life. So why do we have to read the Megillah both day and night? Esther was the one who was totally lost. She was the young lady torn away from her beloved husband, Mordecai, and placed in the lavistuous king's harem. She was the one who had to seduce the king and thus lose her future generations. And she says, Ka'ashir avariti avariti, if I am lost, I am lost. Mordechai did not need a memorial. So why is it called Megillah Esther? Because Mordechai did not need a memorial. He probably had married, he got married again, and he probably had other children, whereas Esther was stuck in this intermarriage, and she has no future. Her only child, her, we know of, was her son, Daryavich, who became the king after Hashverosh. And as far as we know, he was raised as a Persian monarch, and he had very little to do with Judaism. So she never had any Jewish grandchildren. And her son was Jewish just technically because his mother was Jewish, but wasn't really a Jew. He didn't think like a Jew. He didn't care about Yushalayim. He didn't care about the Jewish people. He cared about Persia. He cared about his country. He cared about his own country. So this book is a book about terrible... It was intermarriage, but it was intermarriage by force. It was not a willing intermarriage. She was forced into this situation. So we can see now the sacrifice of Esther. Here's this young... A uh, very Jewish girl with very strong roots, married to the chief rabbi of the generation, one of the chief rabbis of the generation, Mordecai, and being forced into this king, this mean monster king, harem, and forced eventually to become the queen and marry this guy, this, this mamzer, this, this terrible king. So the name of the book also serves a secondary purpose. So why is it called Megillah Esther? Because she is the one who sacrificed herself. This is her only memory. It's interesting. We have to realize when we read the book of Esther, 
This is the only memory she has. This is like her gravestone. This is like her epitaph on her gravestone. This is the only memory she has. This is the only thing Jewish she has left. Her husband wasn't Jewish. Her children were not. Her was barely Jewish. Her grandchildren never had any Jewish grandchildren. So the book of Esther is her memory. We keep her memory alive. The rabbis kept her memory alive as a remembrance of this great heroine of the Jewish people. She, because she had to go through to save us. Right? She lost her this world. And she says, I lost my next world as well. So she was willing to give up both worlds to save us. So then the book becomes her epitaph. The book is in her memory. The second reason we gave was because Megidat Esther means to reveal the hidden, to reveal God in all his actions, the hidden actions of Hashem in history, and to reveal them to us. We see all the events that Hashem uh, concocted that take place over a 12-year period, put together in a nice way of a jigsaw puzzle coming together. We see Hashem acting behind the scenes of history. So this is symbolized, this hiddenness is symbolized by the nighttime reading. We read it at night, and then we read it in the day. Why do we make it at night? Night symbolizes exile. Night symbolizes darkness. Night symbolizes the hiddenness of God. And then we read it in the day. That we see. Now we can start seeing. When we read it again the second time, we start seeing how Hashem saved us. We put all the events together, and we see how Hashem is working behind the scenes of history to save the Jewish people. So in discussing the origins, uh, to read the book of Megillah in the morning, evening, the Talmud says, Rabbi Shuv and Levi says, oh my God, he says, he quotes uh, Psalm 22, which is the, the Psalm of Purim in Tehillim, Psalm 22, Kapdet. Everyone knows Psalm 23, that's uh, Mizmore David, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. Everyone knows Psalm 23. People don't know Psalm 22, the one before, is the Psalm of Ayelet Hashachar. People don't know, it's talking about, it's a, pr- a pleading of Esther. David Amela puts these words, with Ruach HaKodesh, he's predicting the future, the story of Esther. So David HaMelech says, oh my God, I cry in the daytime, but you don't hear me. And I cry at night, and I have no rest. She, she's, imagine she's in this palace, this strange place, and she's pleading with God. I cry at night, I cry in the day. So based on this verse, we, we're going to get at night, and we read the beginning of the day. So interesting that... that is now we can see God in action behind the scenes. Purim is a very strange name for a festival. A Purim, because we know it's named after the poor. The Megillah tells us it's called Purim because it's named after the poor. The poor means a lottery. Haman, descendant of Amalek, it says by Amalek, Asher they happened to you on the way. Amalek attacked us just after we left Egypt, after we crossed the sea, we get the man. And then Haman, the Amalek, who's Haman's forefathers, attack us. And what does it say? It says they happened on the way. Because Amalek's philosophy was based on chance. Everything in this world is not God. Everything in this world is all chance happenings, like the evolutionists who believe that God, there was no God, the world was created by chance. Now it's interesting, mathematicians will tell you that the probabilities of this world being created by chance, coming together by chance, is much greater, much less probability than a, a God existing. It's more probable there's a God who created the world than the world coming together by chance. People don't realize that. The mathematical probabilities of the world coming together by chance are just so impossible. It's much more likely that there's a God who created the world. Anyway, so the Amalek believe in chance. There's no God in this world. Everything happens by chance. So therefore, it's symbolized by this, the spinning of the dice, the casting of the lots. Puri means casting lots because that's what Amalek believed in. That's what Haman believed in. We don't believe in casting lots. But it's interesting because we celebrate Puri. Puri means a lottery. Why? I think Einstein says God does not play uh, chance with the universe, right? So that, I think that's very close to what he says. I'm paraphrasing what he says. God does not uh, play dice. I think that's the word. Play dice with the universe. God does not play dice with the universe. Everything is formulae. Everything is very orderly. Um, there is a joke in the pack, and that's humans' free will. And there's also the uh, there's a there's also a formula which talks about uh, the particles, and it's uh, we don't know exactly where the particles are. Right. That's that's where probably human choice came from. 
that we don't know in any given time where, where, where the electrons will be, you know, particles will be. So it's kind of in a probability uh, formula there over there as well. Anyway, so Purim means chance. We have to find God behind the chances again. So it's Esther, it's hiddenness, and it's also chance. Now you got to find God and say, you know what? I see God's hand in the universe. I see chance. I see prob- improbabilities. I see probabilities. But now I can see God behind the universe. What are the chances of the story taking place? What are the chances of the king throwing out his wife? What are the chances of marrying another wife who is actually a Jewish girl? What are the chances that Haman doesn't know anything about her? What are the chances that she's able to save us? Look at all the chances coming together. All these chances, put the chances together. You get a new formula. All these chances together equals G, capital G, Hashem, God. So it's interesting. That's what the book of the Megillah is about. Revealing the hidden and taking all the chances and finding God in the chances. So, so the question we have is, why is there no name of God in the Megillah? Why did Mordechai, who wrote the Megillah, take out the name of God from the Megillah? So it's interesting. So there's a few answers. The Ibn Ezra, a very famous Spanish rabbi, Abraham Ibn Ezra, beautiful stories about him. He was very, very poor in his lifetime. And he, say, he says that if he, even if he would become an undertaker, he says his luck was so bad, people will stop dying. Maybe he should have become an undertaker. People will stop dying. That's how he says, my luck is so bad. If I became an undertaker, people will stop dying. He also says he went to India. I don't know how he ended up in India. And in India, they fed him chapatis, which is like a flat, a flat bread. He says, now I know why the Egyptians gave Jews matzahs in Egypt, because this bread takes a long time to digest. And therefore, you need to eat much less. So maybe that's why Jesus. Was... Anyway, so Ibn Ezra writes over here. He said, Mordechai originally wrote the name of God at the Megillah, which he sent to all the nations. So it's interesting. All this, this Megillah was not just sent to the Jewish people. It was sent to all the, nation, all the nations in the whole empire of Ahasuerus. 127 countries. He sent it to all 127 countries. And all the idol worshippers, instead of mentioning God's name, they erased God's name and they put the name of their idol instead. So when Mordechai saw that, he took out God's name completely. He took out all mention of any God. He was scared that these pagans would cross out God's name and put over there the name of their God, who saved the Jewish people, not, not God. So that's why there's no name of God. It's left to us to insert. It's left to us to find. It's left to us to put it in. So he wrote, rewrote the whole making of leaving out God's name. That is the Ibn Ezra of Haigaon says the entire story appears as a natural phenomenon. At no time were there any supernatural signs shown. And therefore, there's no name of God. There's nothing supernatural. There's no miracles in the Megillah. Everything is through natural events. The Sefer Heshkel, also in the Middle Ages, he said when the letter was read, they were scared. It would be discarded. So people might throw it away after they read it. It's a one-time letter. So most of the pagans, when they got this letter from Mordecai, okay, here's the Jewish counselor to the king who wrote us a letter. They read the letter, and then they toss it in the garbage. Mordecai was scared. It has God's name. How can you toss it in the garbage? It's going to destroy God's name. And therefore, he skipped God's name from the beginning. Okay, that's the Sefer Ha'eshkol. And uh, Avi Asaf says he wants to distinguish. They wanted to distinguish between the book of Esther and the other holy books. That the book of Esther is the name of God. However, it's interesting, um, the word Melech is mentioned 180 times in the Megillah, and that is a reference to God, okay? So when we said HaMelech, the word HaMelech, the king, the king is the king of kings, Hashem. So there's a hint to Hashem in the Megillah, and that is the word HaMelech. So we have a few central things, we have a few questions about Esther. One of the central questions of the Megillah is, why did Esther hide her identity, her nationality? Or why did Mordechai tell her not to reveal herself? Why did Mordechai differentiate between himself? He advertised his nationality. Everyone knew, Haman knew Mordechai Yehudi. Ahasuerus knows Mordechai is a Yehudi. So why did he tell Esther tell her to, uh, not, to, not to reveal her identity? So how come he was the one who revealed his identity? How come she was not allowed to reveal her identity? And why did Mordechai hide her relationship to him or his relationship to her? How come no one knew that she was Mordecai's wife? How come he didn't tell anyone? How come he didn't tell anyone she was his cousin? How come he didn't tell anyone? So Rashi explains, Mordecai wanted her to appear a commoner of dubious heritage. 
we find this interesting halacha in Jewish law. If there's a child who's, who we find in the street, an abandoned child, so the, the, the Gemara says, if it's in a Jewish neighborhood, we assume it's a Jewish child. If it's in a Jewish neighborhood, we go by the majority of people maybe living in the neighborhood, must be a Jewish child. However, this child has no heritage. What does that mean? We don't know who his parents are, and we give the child the status of a suffix mamzeh. This child is not allowed to marry anyone. No Jews allowed to marry him unless they are also suffix mamzeh. So therefore, that Jewish child, why no one knows who the parents of that child were. Maybe the child uh, were parents were illegitimate, they were their relatives, they're not allowed to get married, and maybe, maybe the child's illegitimate. So the child is Jewish, but it's illegitimate. So therefore, Rashi says, if Esther is not telling anyone who her parents were, maybe she is illegitimate, and which king in his right mind would marry a, a, a woman who you don't even know who the parents are? So Mordechai was hoping by telling her, don't tell anyone who your parents are, Maybe the king will throw her out the harm and she won't be eligible to be a queen. However, the king doesn't care. He was a monster. We said he's a monster. He didn't care. He just cared about beauty. He didn't care about anything. Um, so, uh, and how do we know? Because it says that Esther was taken against her will. It says, but Tilakach Esther. She was taken. She was kidnapped off the street. She never went willingly to the king. Number two, and when she went to the king's harem, she, it says all the other women would ask for different uh, kinds of makeup, different kinds of perfumes. She never asked for anything. She was unwilling. She didn't want to be the queen. So the question is, why does Esther continue to hide her lineage even after she became the queen? Right? So she was descended from King Saul. She had a very good lineage. She could have said, you know, I'm a, I'm a descendant. I'm a princess in my own right. I'm descended from King Saul. So Ibn Ezra, uh, Ibn Ezra says, Mordechai wanted her to be queen and feared. He said, if Hashrash found out she was Jewish, either he would kill her or he would make her break her Jewish halachot. He'd make her, he'd force her to break halacha. And therefore, it was better that she was uh, not revealed, she was hidden. Her identity was hidden. Mordechai wanted her to be queen based on dreams that he had, Ibn Ezra says. This is based on the fact that he rebuked her. We're going to see. The problem is his words seem to have been just occurred to him and not known by him as a dream. So it's not clear in the, in the Pasuk if it's known to him as a dream or not. Mordechai acted like this so that she could keep the Torah in secret. If it became known she was Jewish, maybe the king would force her to act contrary to religious beliefs or he would kill her. Again, this is not revealed in the, in the text. This is a commentary of the Ibn Israel. Another, there's another commentary. Esther did not reveal her nationality and her descent, for Mordechai commanded not to tell. And each day, Mordechai would walk about the front of the court, and Esther find favor and grace in the eyes of the king and is selected to be the queen. We read, in both cases, the text attributes Esther's actions to Mordechai. And in both cases, it goes on to describe the behavior of one of them. In the first case, the behavior of Mordechai. In the case, the second case, the behavior of Esther. First, is concerned, what's, what's going to happen to Esther? Mordechai is very concerned. And, and Esther does whatever Mordechai says. So there's a tremendous relationship between the two. Even after she was taken, you can see it was a deeper relationship just, than just a cousin. She was his wife. And she trusted him implicitly, and he would uh, advise her what to do, and she would do what he advised. So Mordechai was animated by two concerns. He treats Esther like a father who loves his daughter, he is concerned for her well-being, what will happen to her. She seems that she is a foreign girl and maybe she should be treated badly. When she becomes queen, he's concerned about what she will do and how she will act. There's a connection between the story of Yosef, Moshe, and Esther. We find all three, Yosef, Moshe, and Esther, we all find favor in the eyes of those that see them. We have this chen. It says, She found favor in the eyes of everyone who saw her. The Gemara says she wasn't even pretty, but she found, had this quality of grace. Esther had this quality of grace. Everyone liked her, she, even though she wasn't so pretty, but everyone liked her. It's very hard to understand that because, you know, here's this big, big beauty contest, and here is a Hashverosh whose eyes are all about beauty we're going to talk about. Excuse me, so, Rabbi. Uh, sorry, don't please put off your mic because we'll have questions at the end, okay? Put off your mic, yeah? So they all find favor in the eyes of those that see them. Yosef, Moshe, and Esther all find favor of those who see them. 
and they ultimately succeed in their efforts because Hashem is with them. It's the same thing applies to Esther, and maybe Adorned and Mordechai, that the reason why Esther is in the king's palace, maybe it's part of God's plan, and he was right. Part of God's plan was, and he says that explicitly later on, that that was God's plan. Okay, we are moving on. Um, the Gemara says, in Megillah 7a, Roshmur ben Yehuda said, Esther sent a message to the sages. You may send a message to the rabbis. Establish me for all generations. Please, make my book last for all generations. Although a story of the entire nation, it's called Megillah Esther. There's a lot to be learned from the story of Esther. Who is Esther mentioned in the second chapter? A beautiful girl, but she is powerless. Esther is powerless. She is dominated by Mordechai. We said her cousin, her husband. Whatever Mordechai told her, Esther did. Just like she was in trust with him. So she was a helpless girl. She was dominated by Mordechai. And therefore, she did whatever Mordechai told her to do. So a certain lack of sophistication about her, a simplicity and innocence. All the other girls come to the royal palace every time a dormant. Six months in the oil of myrrh and six months with perfume and women's cosmetics. Esther asks for nothing. She asks for nothing special. She wears no makeup. She's completely natural, a simple, innocent, and honest girl. She does everything according to orders. First of Mordechai, and then she follows the orders of a guy who's in charge of the women, the king's officer in charge of the women in the harem. So whatever he tells her, she does. She does not leave out a thing, but she does not initiate. She's not an initiator. She is just acting on orders. There seems to be nothing about Esther's personality or character to give her any prominence. Esther seems to be a girl with no character, with no prominence. And she does not mention her birthplace. She doesn't mention her nationality. Why? Because Mordecai told her not to. So it's interesting because the word Esther is hiddenness. And that describes not only the hiddenness of God, but also describes the hiddenness of Esther in the king's palace. She is not revealed who she is. She doesn't reveal her background. She doesn't reveal her parents. She doesn't reveal her nationality. She doesn't reveal her religion. So therefore, Esther is a very good name. Esther is a very good name for her. Hiddenness. She is hidden in the palace until the time comes to reveal herself. All of a sudden, Esther changes dramatically. After the royal decree to exterminate the Jews is issued in Shushan, messengers are dispatched to publicize it. And it says, The queen was very, very distressed. She was very, extremely distressed. Why was the queen distressed? And the answer is she has this tremendous feeling for her people. My people are going to be destroyed. Finally, we find Esther is reacting to something other than her cousin's command. She's reacting to something other than Haggai, the king's officer's command. She is reacting to a call inside her. Her soul is talking to her. My nation is going to be destroyed. I can't. What can I do? She's in a panic. She's greatly distressed, but she doesn't do anything. What does she do? She says to herself, you know, we don't have these words, but you can imagine. What can I do? I'm a young and simple girl. I can't make, I can't move mountains. I have nothing, no power. I'm just here uh, dressed up as the king's uh, so-called wife, but I have no real power. The entire people of Israel are in danger. This she can bear. But then she hears Mordecai, her beloved uncle or cousin or husband, has removed his regular clothing and is wearing sackcloth. And then she gets really scared. As we said, she got very scared. She sends new clothes to Mordechai to wear. She was really so simple. And she really believed that Mordechai is dressed in sackcloth because he has no clothes to wear. So she sends Mordechai new clothes. And uh, she tells Mordechai, take off your sackcloth. You're very embarrassing. You're wearing sackcloth by the gate of the gig. And Mordechai does not receive the beautiful clothes. He won't wear them. And instead of trying to cancel the royal decree, instead of ex- expressing solidarity with the people by joining in protest and mourning, she begs Mordechai to accept the decree and wear his clothes. And Mordechai said, lucky bill. He doesn't accept Esther's perspective. So here Esther is now initiating and telling Mordechai what to do. Mordechai, 
forget about the Jewish people, just take off your sackcloth, stop protesting, and just accept this decree. And that's it. Nothing we can do. But however, it still represents a kind of progress in her personality is now coming up to the fore. She no longer displays complete passivity and helplessness. Something has started to move inside her. Once there is concern for the individual Mordechai, she starts to change. She sends a Mordechai uh, messenger, Hatach, who some people say is the prophet Daniel, who was cut down from his former glory, Hatach, and she gives him a proclamation, a copy of the proclamation that the king had issued to exterminate the Jews. And uh, sorry, Mordechai gives Hatach. So she sends this uh, servant Hatach with new clothes to Mordechai, and Mordechai sends back this proclamation issued by the king to destroy all the Jews. And he asks Esther to go and plead with the king for mercy for the Jewish people. So all over, the swords are being sharpened, the ammunition is being gathered, but Esther is unmoved. She tells Mordechai she cannot approach the king. It is against palace regulations. And I just want to read you the words in Hebrew and I'll translate. Call all the servants of the king, and all the people, the nations of, of his uh, people in the nations which he has conquered. Yodim, they all know. Any man or woman who comes into the inner courtyard, who are not called into that courtyard, the law is clear, they have to be killed. Except for all only the king sets out his gold scepter to greet them, and then the person can live. Right? And then she adds, and the king has not called me for the last 30 days. So I'm not going to risk it. I'm gonna, not going to risk my life for the Jewish people. Let's, what can I do? I'm just helpless in the king's palace. Such was Esther's response, even after the queen was greatly dis- distressed. Even after she has a copy of the royal decree. She might be exposed to danger to save Klan Israel, but her personal interest comes first. In other words, I'm, I'm safe in the king's palace. No one knows who I am. The king of the Jews will be killed, and I'm safe over here. So Mordechai sends her another message, a very, very harsh message. Al tidami benafshech. Don't fool yourself. Don't think that you are going to be safe in the king's palace. We call on you from all the Jews. Look at this accusation. Mordechai sends a tremendous accusation. You think you're going to survive from all the Jews in the king's palace? What a chutzpah you have. Who knows what's going to happen to you? And don't forget, there's many messengers. God has many messengers. The Jews will be saved, and you in the palace will be killed, will be destroyed. Mordechai doesn't put her reactions down to weakness or lack of courage. Rather, he puts it down to a calculated choice. Let the entire Jewish people perish, and I will remain secure in the royal palace. Behind her apparent timidity lies apathy. If you really cared, if you really considered your own soul to be at stake, would you be able to say for a whole month, I've not been called to the king? Why doesn't Mordechai give her the benefit of the doubt? Understand her weakness. Mordechai will not compromise. One must be prepared for self-sacrifice, taking care that national interests come first. You know, this is a message, one of the major messages of the Megillah. Every Jew around the world shouldn't say, you know, whatever happens to my brethren, I don't care, I'm going to be safe over here. Whatever happens to our brethren, just like the Jews, you know, they, they demonstrated for Russian Jewry. Every Jew around the world needs our help and our support. And we can't say, you know, I'm here. What have I got to do with it? I'm safe in my corner. Let them all go. You know, it's interesting how the response of the American Jews mainly uh, to the Holocaust, uh, most, most of them just kept quiet. There, were, there weren't many demonstrations uh, to allow them into America. People sort of kept quiet. They wanted to be safe in their country, and they didn't care or whatever. They couldn't, uh, they couldn't do anything. They felt it was like Esther in the palace of the king, you know, saying, I'm safe here. I'm going to be safe. And you know what? I can't do anything about the rest of the Jews. But if you will remain silent at this time, this is what he tells them. Relief and salvation will rise for the Jews from somewhere else. And you and your father's house will perish. If you don't perish by dying, you're just going to perish through assimilation, through intermarriage and assimilation. It's amazing how much assimilation there is today. You know, um, I just uh, got a message from one of our you know, friends that their family in uh, America 
really such beautiful intellectual children who go to Harvard and Tufts and all the best schools, intellectuals, and they're really gorgeous uh, to look at. But two boys and two girls, they're all going out and assimilating. They're all going to be assimilated. So we have to pray for them. They're running show. They'll come back to our people. That's, you know, we, we don't think about every single Jew is a whole world. Every single person is a whole world. We have to pray for them. We have to pray for all these people who are just like Esther was stuck in the king's palace. Really, it's a message to us. The book of Esther is talking to us. It was Esther stuck in the king's palace, assimilated, but at least she used it for good. She used it to save the Jews. She used the situation. She didn't just vanish. She kept everyone else alive, and therefore she had a purpose in life, and she had eventually she gets her next world as well. So if you will remain silent, he tells her, relief and salvation will rise for the Jews from somewhere else, and you and your father's house will all perish. It's a hard thing to say to an orphan. She's an orphan girl. Her father dead, her mother dead, she has no one. And he's going to tell her, you know what? All their work, all their uh, cries, all their trouble for you are going to be wasted completely. Your response exhibits moral and ethical failure. This is interpretation. Even practically, do you think you will survive because the king's attracted to you? Is this how you think God runs his world? Someone who avoids any responsibility, who doesn't care, who isn't prepared to risk himself, who gives personal ambition priority over the national interest, will he be the person to survive and succeed? Or will you, or will you, or will you disappear? You and your father's house will be destroyed. And then he says something even more poignant. If you are silent at this time, the salvation will come to the Jews from another place. You and your father's house will, will be destroyed. Who knows? For this very reason, for this very time, you got to be the queen. You got to the royal palace. In other words, I see God's hand in you being now at the palace at this time. And if you don't use it, then you're going to be destroyed. Hashem is going to destroy you completely. You and your whole father's house are going to have no purpose in this world. So this, uh, what happens? This is a turning point in Esther's life. We see now the turning point in Esther's life where she is now willing to sacrifice herself for the Jewish people. This is a tremendous, tremendous self-sacrifice on Esther's part, which we have to appreciate. When we read the Megillah, it's named after her because of this turning point. She was willing to sacrifice herself. Not only was she willing to sacrifice herself, she was tremendously successful. She used tremendous psychology, which we have to talk about to destroy Haman. She used tremendous psychology. She got the king very jealous of Haman by inviting the king and Haman only to two parties. And the king can't sleep that night. After the first party can't sleep, maybe there is a plot against him. Who by? By Esther and Haman. We're going to talk a bit about that. Please, hopefully we'll get there. So the doubtful, hesitating, fearful Esther has now reached, pushed with her back to the wall no excuses are acceptable. Mordechai does not give her any leeway. So what, what lies behind all your excuses? Apathy. What you have to decide is, do I care? I don't care. That's really what Mordechai is telling her. Do you care or do you not care? If you don't care, you're not going to survive either way. Either way, you're not going to survive. So it's better to go ahead and, and uh, sacrifice yourself for the Jewish people. Otherwise, you're going to be sacrificed anyway. You'll be assimilated. You'll be gone. No uh, real... Uh, uh, Jewish continuity. So young, passive, powerless Esther faces the moment of truth and prevails. She is now prepared to reveal herself, to cooperate and stand and fall with her nation. Her fate and destiny are bound up with the nation as a whole. Her response is, go and gather all the Jews. Get all the Jews, the young people, the old people, the children, the women, everyone. And pray for me for three days. Fast and pray for me for three days. And so the Megillah is about development on two levels. It, it's about strength of character, initiative, and courage. And it's also about moral awareness, reassessing priorities. So plea consists of prayer. And then she dons her royal garb after three days of praying and fasting. I don't know what she looked like after three days of fasting. We just have a one-day fast to commemorate the fast of Esther. That's uh, tomorrow. Tomorrow, uh, that's why there's no class tomorrow. Tomorrow, and we are all faced with this dilemma to a certain extent. 
What are our priorities? Our priorities, our nation, our, our individual wealth, our individual freedom. What is our priorities? Our own personal good or the good of our people? So it's just that's why all our prayers are in the plural. When we pray Shmonasra, we're praying in the plural. We have to always think about salvation of Am Israel. We also have to pray Hashem should stop the machinations of the Iranians today, the Amans today. You know, I see them praying five times a day. They bow down to Allah on the carpet. And when I see them, I say, Hashem, please don't listen to their prayers. I know they're going to pray to destroy us, Hashem. Please don't listen to their prayers. Save us, Hashem. Save us. So we have to finish. We have to come to a conclusion now. So I just want to talk a bit about the word Tov. Because the word Tov is used seven times uh, by Hashverosh. Haman tells him, Tov. You right to destroy the Jews, and I'll give you 10,000 talents of silver. So this phrase is tov, tov, tov. But you know what? It's talking about tov in the eyes of the king. It's talking about tov in the eyes of the king, which is not goodness. But we talk about tov, talk about good. It's a moral uh, qualification. Over here at the beginning, we find the word tov is misused, as it is today in America. used it misused today. I had a good time last night. What are you doing? Doing also all kinds of evil things. So the word good is misused, and we see this in the Megillah. It's used by good to kill his wife. It's good for him to kill the entire Jewish people. And uh, the king says to Haman as well, the money is given back to you. You can do what's good in your eyes as well. So this moral term good is misused in the Megillah to teach us that this is a corrupt society society everything is good what's good in your eyes what's good in my eyes it's all about me it's really all about me i decide what's good it's not god it's not there's no universal morality it's all intellect it's all personal immorality each one decides that's what our society is each one decides what's good each every person will do what's right in their eyes that's our society and we have to go back to god's society which is doing what's good in the eyes of god and that's what ishayahu the prophet says, and that's what the Torah says, you will do what's right and what's good in the eyes of God. I wish you all a very, very good, happy Purim. You've just experienced another Torah class brought to you by TorahAnytime.com.